You're listening to the next best thing. To the next best thing. This is the next best thing. It is a brand new week, a fresh new week, and aren't we feeling glorious about it? I am holding down the fort here as we enter week 7,920. I don't know. It feels that way about this pandemic, shelter in place order, all that stuff. Now, I'm not going to complain about it because I know it's for the best, but it's crazy to me to think how long this has been going on. How long has this been going on for you? Um, Really, though, I'm getting fatter. And I'm not just being funny about that. I'm literally getting fatter. I can hear myself. I can certainly feel it. Every shirt is a little more snug. And yeah, what else do you need? What more evidence do you possibly need? None! All right, folks. Last week, we explored the world and the works of Stephen Sondheim, the foremost musical theater composer of, well, probably the last century. Tonight, we're going to explore the work of another contributor to the same art form, but one that sadly died before he was able to contribute as much as he probably would have liked. Tonight, I want to talk about Jonathan Larson. Do you know that name? Most famous for the musical Rent. Tonight, I want to talk about the life and work of Jonathan Larson. John had a sense that he was meant to do something big. He wanted to change the course of musical theater. He wanted to do something majestic, and he wanted to do it loud. And he wanted to do something that people could not ignore. Writing this particular musical meant a great deal to him. Rent was Jonathan's dramatization of the life he was living. He captured what we had gone through in our struggles. I knew we had something special, but I had no idea it was going to be so huge. This was the realization of his dreams. This artist worked and worked and worked and worked and was about to break through and then had death so capriciously pull it away from him. I made it very clear that I wanted nothing more than to see this show continue on. It became a sensation. Every professional dream John ever had came true the day he died. He was suddenly famous. He just wasn't alive. It touched the nerve of a generation of people who perhaps wouldn't have even come to the theater. I cry every time I see this. It makes me weep. It's probably the most moving Broadway musical I've ever seen. Action! Chris's conception of making this movie was to honor what was on stage and bring it to a movie audience. This is an extraordinary living testament to Jonathan. For me, it's just painfully ironic. You can't write a story like this. No game All right, so some personal history. I first was exposed to the musical Rent in, I think, 1998 or 99. I was about 10 years old, and I was in New York City for the first time of my entire life. And I was here. It was me, my mom and dad, and my sister, Abby. And we were here because we were dropping her off at a summer program at the School of American Ballet. Big for her and a fun trip for the rest of us. Now, as I said, this was my first time coming to New York City. And so I didn't have much say in what shows or what we did in terms of the vacation. And so my parents, dad really, picked two Broadway shows for us to go see. One was Beauty and the Beast, which was, by the way, just spectacular. And the other was Rent, which I'd never heard of, knew nothing about. And I'll tell you this. When I saw the musical as a 10-year-old, Broadway production, I remember two things. I just told my sister this the other night. Here's what I took away. It was really loud, and had my sister not told me at intermission that the character of Angel was a man, 
dressed up as a woman, I never would have known. I thought it was a woman. So I wasn't exactly the most perceptive or receptive to the production as a 10-year-old. But one thing did stand out to me. My dad, who was hardly a musical theater person by any stretch, loved it. Loved, loved, loved it. And so I basically pretended to love it because I loved anything that he loved. And he loved it to the point where he bought the album. He listened to it all the time. And as I grew up, as I got older, I started to realize what the show was actually about. And two years after that trip, as a 12-year-old, my dad died very suddenly. And everything that he loved, everything that was going on, and everything that I connected to him suddenly had much more meaning and was much more important to me. And so the connection that association I have with this musical is very lasting and is very meaningful to me, especially as I've gotten older and I really have come to realize what the message of the show is. Now, Rent is, without question, Jonathan Larson's magnum opus. It is what everyone knows him for, and it is his biggest success. Like I said, he passed away before he really got to do much else. But it is not the only thing he contributed to the world of musical theater. Take a listen to what some of his friends have to say when it comes to the work outside of Rent. There's this entire catalog of what he's created. Well, he did have some other commissions and projects where he was paid to write music. He and his friend Victoria Leacock worked on all of John Winter's home videos, and John scored them. We put an act together, a little singing group, Jay Glitz. We developed sort of crazy alter ego characters. We would just go to open mics all over the city and just sing. He wrote here and there for Sesame Street a little bit. He wrote some music for Hire. He had a collaboration with someone named Bob Golden. They had an idea to do a pilot for a kid's show called The Way We Go, and my brother directed it. And every toddler that I know loves it. Hey, it's time to get moving, time to slime. Time to get grooving, rattle and roll. It's time to get ready to go. Mentalato. It was one of the only things he ever got produced. Jonathan's life was the most single-minded pursuit of an artistic vision that I've ever witnessed. Jonathan pushed his musicals out there to anyone who would listen. That was his life. He had some works. He wrote for a children's show that almost got produced. But one of the most, one of my favorite things Jonathan contributed to the world of musical theater was something that actually started out as a one-man show that he put together. And it came at a time in his life when he had, he had been working on a musical called Superbia. It was basically a musical version of Orwell's 1984. It was a futuristic world and whatnot. And it had gone okay. It had won some awards, but it never really found any backers. It never really got produced. And he finally had to let it go. And he was feeling like we've all felt probably from time to time, like, what am I doing here? Am I, you know, am I on the right path? Am I really going to have a life as a composer? And so he wrote a one-man show, and he originally called it Boho Days. Here's what was going on in his life when Boho Days came about. Jonathan's life, you know, working at the Moondance Diner, trying to make a living so that he could come home every day and work on his musicals. Musicals that no one wanted to produce. He was on the edge of turning 30. He spent years and years working on Superbia, and that had come to nothing in a way, since he had nothing except some awards to show for it. Jonathan then spent three or four years working on Boho Days, a 90-minute rock monologue. No one knew what Boho meant, so then he called it Tick, Tick, Boom. Tick, Tick, Boom. Tick, tick, boom. Tick, tick, boom. Tick, tick, boom was a way to respond to the sense of rejection that he felt. Tick, tick, tick. Boom, boom, boom. I need about a half pound bag of M&M's. Someone get these people out of here before I have a nervous breakdown. I can't smile any harder and I want to shoot them. He said, okay, screw you. I'm doing a one-man piece. And it was my brother and a piano and a band. Our hero 
rock musical writer, food service expert, Jonathan. It's not that I don't share my feelings, I just convert them into songs. Is this normal? Has Journey 30 always sucked? What was amazing was that he told this story all through pop songs. It's a really good snapshot of his point in life. I'm afraid of being stuck waiting tables forever. I'm, I love this show. I actually got a chance to produce and direct this show in college, so it always it certainly holds a special place in my heart. And that is where we'll start tonight in reviewing and appreciating the work of Jonathan Larson.
that is the opening number to Tick, Tick, Boom. And if you didn't catch on, 3090, that's referencing he's turning 30 years old, and it's the year 1990. It's an autobiographical show uh, about Jonathan Larson, originally performed as a one-man rock monologue. Now, this show is all self-reflective, what was going on at that time in his life. And at that time in his life, he was... Well, there wasn't a lot going on. <laughs> he didn't have a lot of acceptance. He wasn't getting a lot of encouragement or financial support. And so he was at a kind of a crossroads in his work life, in his relationship. And he really felt like he had to make some choices, some hard choices. That's illustrated in this song from Tick, Tick, Boom, Johnny Can't Decide. Break of day, the dawn is here. Johnny's up and pacing. Compromise or persevere. His mind is racing. Johnny has no guide. Johnny wants to. Can he make a mark if he gives up his spark? Johnny can't decide sit down right now at my piano and write a song that people will listen to and remember and do the same thing every morning for the rest of my life.
Stephen Sondheim is the preeminent musical theater composer. He wrote shows like Sweeney Todd, Company, A Little Night Music, the greatest musicals of all time, and amazingly well-crafted, too. So he was an inspiration. Yeah, Sondheim was the, uh, the dean. Every aspiring musical playwright wanted to uh, be Sondheim. And uh, Jonathan idolized him. I mean, that was his hero. And uh, Jonathan got in touch with him and wrote him a letter, and uh, Sondheim wrote back. And uh, Jonathan held on to every word and note and lyric this guy wrote like it was spun gold. They made a connection so that John subsequently sent everything he wrote to Sondheim for his approval, which I thought was the height of audacity. You know, I would say to him, do you think that Steve Sondheim might have something better to do with his time? And he would say, no, he's got to hear what I'm working on. And to his credit, uh, Sondheim always wrote back, or phoned back. He was rigorous in always responding and helping him direct his career. That is absolutely amazing to me. So Jonathan Larson, like anyone who has an interest in the musical theater, idolized and respected and loved the work of Stephen Sondheim. And in the late 80s, early 90s, Stephen Sondheim was at the height of his power. I mean, he had, had written Sweeney Todd in 79, in 87, came into the woods. These were some of his most popular and lasting musicals. And yet he made time to respond, to meet with, to listen to the work of this young guy, Jonathan Larson, who really hadn't done anything. That's amazing to me. And that says a lot about Stephen Sondheim, who just turned 90 and whose work we explored last week. Well, in Tick, Tick, Boom, Jonathan Larson wrote a tribute to Stephen Sondheim in a song called Sunday. In Tick, Tick, Boom, it is set in the Moondance Diner, where Jonathan worked for a long time here in New York City. But it pays tribute to a song, a very famous song, from Sunday in the Park with George, one of my favorite Stephen Sondheim musicals. I'm sorry, seven. we don't deliver on Sunday. I need table three for two yesterday. Is there a list? Harrington, Harrington! Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N for seven. Order. No, I'm sorry, those people were here first. We don't have tables for seven. Are we in smoking? Tension. I'll have the salad, Nikois, and some honey bread. Balance. an omelet with no yolks. That's why you're just a waiter. Brunch. Sunday in the blue silver chromium diner on the green Purple, yellow, red stools Sit the fools Who should eat at home Instead they pay on Sunday For a cool orange juice or a bagel On the soft green cylindrical stools Sit the fools the green orange violet drool from the fools who'd pay less at home drinking coffee light and dark and cholesterol Bums, 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 bums.
Merry Sunday, 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 Brunch. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are exploring the work of Jonathan Larson. And that, of course, was the title song from his magnum opus, the musical, the rock musical. It's really, it's referred to as a rock opera, Rent. And boy, it's funny because while that was written and set in the 90s, very relevant today, isn't it? Some people can't afford to pay rent because they have a virus, kind of like the virus featured in this show. So. The story of Rent, it is loosely, well, not even that loosely, it seems pretty clear to me, it is based on the opera La Boheme. It tells the story of a group of impoverished young artists struggling to survive and create a life in New York City. And they live primarily in the East Village, Alphabet City, in the thriving days of bohemian life and artist life. Under, of course, the shadow of the HIV AIDS epidemic. That's the virus I'm, of course, referring to when I talk about the one featured in the show. Now, this work came to Jonathan Larson from somebody else. So somebody, Jeffrey Sellers, I believe, saw him perform his one-man rock monologue, Tick, Tick, Boom, that we heard music from 
just a while ago. And he was like, you know what? I'm really, I really believe in your work. I'd like to produce your work. Here's a guy who I know who has actually been trying to create an adaptation of La Boheme. Why don't you guys work together? And they did for a while. But eventually, Jonathan Larson, who was not exactly the most talented collaborator. He didn't love working with other people. He had a very clear vision that he liked to stick to. And when people had suggestions or, you know, wanted to contribute, it didn't always go well. So eventually he said to his partner, listen, I really have a vision for this. I think I want to go my own way. Is that okay with you? They worked on an agreement and he was off to the races. Now in La Boheme, there's Rodolfo, who's an artist. He is Roger, Roger the musician. And there's Mimi, who in the opera is a prostitute. In Rent, she is a stripper who's got a drug problem. They fall in love. And just like in the opera, they are initially attracted when Mimi asks Roger to light her candle. What do you forget? Got a light. I know you, you're, you're shivering. It's nothing, they turned off my heat. And I'm just a little weak on my feet. Would you light my candle? What are you staring at? Nothing, your hair in the moonlight. You look familiar. Can you make it? Just haven't eaten much today At least the room stopped spinning anyway What? Nothing Your smile reminded me of I always remind people of Who is she? She died Her name was April It's out again Sorry about your friend Would you like my candle? I like it between my fingers. I figured, oh well, good night. You look familiar, like your dead girlfriend. Only when you smile, but I'm sure I've seen you somewhere else. Do you go to the Cat Scratch Club? That's where I work, I dance. Help me look. Yes, they used to tie you up. It's a living. I didn't recognize you without the handcuffs. We could light the candle. Forget that stuff, you look like you're 16 I'm 19, but I'm old for my age I'm just born to be bad I once was born to be bad I used to shiver like that I have no heat, I, I used to sweat I got a cold, uh-huh, I used to be a junkie but now and then I like to uh-huh. feel good Oh, hear it! What's that? It's a candy bar wrapper That was my last match Our eyes will adjust Thank God for the moon Maybe it's not the moon at all I hear Spike Lee shooting down the street Bahamba Bahamba Cold hands Yours too Big Like my father's Do you wanna dance? With you my father I'm Roger They call me They call me Mimi Having producers who are cheerleaders and who are supporters but who are also critics was painful to him because um, 
Uh, we didn't hold back. Jonathan was hard-headed. He did not want to change a lot of stuff. Rent was his baby, and he had a hard time collaborating. It was something he really had to learn how to do, kicking and screaming. Everyone is very fragile, and this was multiplied by 10 because of the scale of the project. Jonathan felt a lot of frustration at the pace that this was moving forward. He had been working with it a long time. He certainly got to enough is enough, and when is this thing getting on? Jonathan had seen a lot of hopes dashed, and he was paranoid, totally paranoid, that it would fall apart. Yeah, there were many points during the process where it looked like it might not happen, partially because of money, whether or not we could afford it, partially because of disagreements in the collaborators, whether this was going to work, whether Jonathan was going to be able to rewrite it in a way that Jim Nicola was willing to produce it. At one point, we actually said to him, you're really ready to do this. We think it needs some more work. Perhaps you need to go and find another producer. They had some artistic disagreement where, you know, Jonathan was, I want this, and Michael was like, no, that's not working. And Jonathan insisting, and Michael saying, look, I, I can't take this shit, you know? My plate is full, and uh, I'm walking, and Jonathan saying, you can't go, crying. You know, like, this is my baby. You cannot leave. I think he overcame some of the stubbornness. He would go home after a conversation or after rehearsal even, kind of have a furrowed brow, not really want to do a certain amount of it. And then he'd come back in a few days later and have these two great new songs, wait till you hear it. And it was like all of that had gone away. Maybe the reason Rent succeeded where the others didn't is Jonathan accepted input from a team of people that he thought were amazingly talented. And he'd grown up a little bit and he realized that it was a team. Ultimately, no matter how much Jonathan hated it, and no matter how much it stung, he listened, he took it in, and he made it better. In fact, one of the last songs that was written and added to Rent was one of my favorites. It is one of the few, frankly, male duets in the Broadway literature, and certainly one of the best. It is sung by the characters Mark and Roger. And Mark, the character of Mark, is always kind of connected with me in many ways. It is called What You Own.
I hear you, I hear it, I see it, I hear it, I hear it, I hear it, my song. Alexi, Lawrence, song. Call me a hypocrite. I need to finish my own film. I quit. Dying in America at the end of the millennium. We're dying in America to come into our own. And when you're dying in America at the end of the millennium, you're not. Listening to the next best thing, and that's all. And okay, and okay. All right, you're listening to the next best thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. Now, a famous, a fairly famous story associated with Rent is the death of its composer, Jonathan Larson, whose work we are exploring tonight. So, the musical was first produced and seen in a workshop production at New York Theater Workshop in 1993 that still exists, and it is still in the East Village. This same off-Broadway theater was also the musical's initial home following its official 1996 opening. Now, the night before the official opening off-Broadway, so it was the final dress rehearsal of Rent, and, you know, a lot of the critics had come, and it was a huge night, and it went so well. And Jonathan Larson was interviewed. He had quit his job as a waiter. Everything was finally looking up for him. And they were so, ex- everyone was so excited for the future of Rent. And he was just on cloud nine when he left the theater. And he went home. He went to his apartment on the corner of Greenwich in spring. He walked up to his fourth floor apartment, put on some hot water to make some tea. And at some point between, I think, 12.30 and 1.30 a.m., his aorta fully ruptured and he died. He died. Now, it was very sudden. He had been having some weird, you know, health issues that week. He wasn't sure if it was the flu, if it was stress. He did go to the doctor a number of times and he was told it was stress. But it was actually an undiagnosed, I think, heart condition. And he died before ever getting to really see his work go to Broadway. That was his lifelong dream. And he died in the blink of an eye. And it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's, you know, the whole message of Rent, as I said, it was, it's dealing with artists, starving artists living in New York City during the height of the AIDS epidemic. So a lot of people are dying. And the message of Rent is no day but today. Well, how could that message have ever been more poignant on the day after they lose their creator, the the creator of this work, at the drop of a hat? I can't even imagine. The 15 kids came down the aisle and got up on the stage and formed a line across the stage and began singing Seasons of Love. It was the most astounding moment because it was so clear. I mean, Jonathan had written his own memorial. This was kind of a memorial to Jonathan, and we saw that. That was when it really became really hard to get through, where it was like took everything we had to just put one word up in front of the next to make our voices come through our throats, which were closing up and choking a lot of depth and a lot of complexity found itself that night i mean starting with adam singing glory one song glory one song before i go glory one song to leave behind every single lyric was heightened because suddenly Jonathan's death felt like it was all over this show. And it was clear he'd written a manifesto about how to view this death, this tragedy. One last gift from Jonathan. 
in the middle of the second act. I was singing I'll Cover You, the reprise. In the play, yes, I sing about Angel, but uh, this would be about Jonathan. Open your door, I'll be your tenant. When the second act came down and the last note was sung, there was an immediate standing ovation. The entire audience, the entire audience, sat back down and did not move. It was deafening, it was so quiet. Nobody knew what to do. And I don't know whether it was 15 seconds or 30 seconds, the people just sat there in that silence. It seemed like an eternity until this young voice spoke out. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan Larson. Thank you, Jonathan Larson. And that broke the spell and everybody moved. And I remember standing by my seat, saying to somebody, I hope this shows a success and becomes a lasting tribute to Jonathan. And it certainly did. Those were his parents, by the way, who were at that last dress rehearsal the day their son died, or the day after. The musical moved to Broadway and made its debut there on April 29th, 1996, not long ago at all. I mean, excuse me, the anniversary was not long ago at all. On Broadway, it got critical acclaim. It won several awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and the Tony Award for Best Musical. The Broadway production closed September 7th, 2008, after 12 years, making it one of the longest-running shows in Broadway history. And the production grossed over $280 million. It has since been made into a blockbuster film, and there are productions, there are productions of Rent all over the country, all over the world, any given day of the week. And so I also have to say, because my dad loved it so much and because it has such a new, strong connection and meaning to me that I also have to say thank you, Jonathan Larson.
You know, one of the most tragic parts of losing Jonathan Larson at the age of 35, so young, when he had so much more to contribute, was that besides Tick, Tick, Boom and Rent, there we didn't have much of his work to perform or to sing or to listen to nowadays. Well, last year, an album was put together called The Jonathan Larson Project, where I was so happy to see uh, his the Jonathan Larson Foundation put together some of his lesser known works, works that no one, I mean, very few had ever heard before. And, you know, a lot of the songs on there are just incredible. One of my favorites is a song called SOS. It doesn't say what it was from necessarily, but it's called SOS. And it's a Jonathan Larson piece that until about a week ago, I had never heard, but I've come to love. This may be my final message This may be the final bow I'm sure I don't know what will happen Doesn't matter anyhow I hear footsteps down the hall Don't know how much they'll If you're waiting for the last week I think the time is now SOS, oh savior SOS, oh hero SOS, messiah Yes, oh yes, oh SOS, oh Jesus SOS, oh Buddha SOS, Emmanuel Yes, oh yes, oh This may be my final hour, this may be the dying day And though they never taught me why in school, I think I'm learning how to pray They are right outside the door Don't know why they keep on stalling, stalling I know you heard this all Doesn't matter anymore. It does in nineteen eighty four. I'm right in nineteen eighty four. I asked why. That's what I say. It's only a play 
I said I didn't know what that was from, and I don't for sure. However, that last line you heard about 1984 makes me think it must be from suburbia. It was that work I told you Jonathan Larson spent so many years working on that never really came to fruition. Um, it was basically an adaptation of Orwell's 1984. So that would make sense. We're just about out of time for tonight, but I'm glad we were able to remember and appreciate the work of Jonathan Larson. It is really tragic to think about all he had left to give, all the music he could have, he had left to write. But it just goes to show why we have to kind of live each day as our last and be thankful for each day that we do have. And it sounds cliche, but it's really true. And in this day, age of the coronavirus, when people are getting sick and reacting in all these different ways, and our country is as divided as it's ever been, and people are angry, like I was in the first half of the show, frankly, it's important to know that we have a lot to be thankful for, and we should be thankful for every day. To end the show tonight, I'll leave you with a Jonathan Larson piece, creator of Rent, creator of Tick, Tick, Boom, and a very important contributor to the world of musical theater. As I say at the end of every show, and I mean it more and more each week, apathy is the enemy, folks. Apathy is the enemy. Never give up, never give in, never stop caring, and never stop making it known that you fucking care. It is good to care. God damn it. For Radio Free Brooklyn, this has been The Next Best Thing. Until next time, I'm Jonathan B. Lerner. Good night. There is no future. There is no past. Thank God this moment's not the last.